0: Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. For the past few episodes, I've been talking about the travels of Sir John Mandeville, a late 1300s travel narrative filled with all kinds of strangeness. Cannibals, giants, people with dog heads, Noah's Ark, all kinds of stuff. But I haven't really talked about where the book comes from. I haven't really talked about who wrote it or why. And on today's episode, I want to talk about who maybe wrote it and also the book's legacy. And I am going to break your heart and crush your dreams right out of the gate. And I'm going to let you down early and tell you that we don't have any real idea who wrote The Travels of Sir John Mandeville. It is a mystery. I am not going to pull a lost here. I am not going to string you along and make you believe that there is going to be some resolution at the end that never comes. I'm just going to tell you, this is a total enigma. But enigmas are kind of fun. Uh, What we do know is that the book is not wholly original. It is mashed up from pre-existing sources, like The Letter of Prester John, which I did a previous episode on, and other romances and legends that were available at the time. Uh, The edition I read, translated by C.W.R.D. Mosley, listed no fewer than 15 different sources for the travels, which all got recut and remixed into the narrative that I've been telling you about. But, like a skilled mashup artist, like Girl Talk, combining the Notorious B.I.G. and Elton John, the author of The Travels of Sir John Mandeville combined bits of the Golden Legend and Pliny into something more compact, hookier and catchier and more infectious. And it might not even be a single author. There are multiple versions of the Mandeville text, and they are slightly different from one another. For instance, there's a long section about Egypt that appears in one version, but not others. And there are also details that seem to have been added after the fact, uh, most prominently a flowery Latin dedication to Edward III, which a lot of scholars seem to think was just kind of adhered onto travels a bit later. So the text appears to be a sort of mutating Frankenstein's monster. It is stitched up from lots of different, disparate, pre-existing elements, and also, even after getting stitched up, seems to be mutating and morphing slightly as it changes hands. Nevertheless, the quest for a single definitive author, that is still tantalizing. And one explanation for The Travels of Sir John Mandeville is that they were indeed written by an English knight named Sir John Mandeville. Now, it's obvious that Mandeville has nicked narratives and ideas from other sources, but consider this. A knight goes to the Holy Land, travels around the surrounding countryside, and reads up on what lies just beyond the lands he's visited. He wants to write about his experience, so he does, but he also wants to fill in the gaps. So, you know, put a little Prester John in there, put a little Pliny in there, put a little golden legend in there, and hey, he's got something original that's been augmented. Now, this is entirely possible. There were people named Mandeville in England in the 1300s, and there were plenty of people that we know were named John Mandeville. However, so far, no one's been able to nail down any record of a known John Mandeville who was alive at the right time, and also, very importantly, was a knight, there are no definitive records of a Sir John Mandeville's knightliness at the right time for this thing to have been written. Now, it's entirely possible that records of his knightliness do exist, and nobody has looked in the right archives or opened the right box yet. That's the kind of thing that happens in history all the time. And there are other possibilities. Other, more remote possibilities, but possibilities. One idea I tripped over while diving into this was that maybe he was fudging the whole night bit Perhaps that was aspirational. Perhaps John Mandeville wanted to be a knight, but wasn't yet. After all, he did say that he wasn't worthy. Maybe he was just hoping for this, or it was a pretense. Or it could be that he got that title while abroad. It's possible that it might not have been an English knighthood, that some lord or king or whatever decided to make John Mandeville a retainer on his travels. But I doubt it. Uh, There are a few instances where Mandeville mentions foreign monarchs smiling on him and offering him things like riches, potential wives, titles, that sort of thing. And if he did receive any kind of title from a king or sultan that he met on his journeys, I think he would have mentioned it. One book I read for this, The Riddle in the Night by British author Giles Milton, was very strongly in the camp that Mandeville was a real person, that he was named John Mandeville, and that he did indeed see most of the places he talked about on his travels. Milton is convinced of this conclusion, but he is never able to definitively prove anything. He walks around with his conclusion in mind, trying to find evidence to support it, which is bad science and bad journalism, and much of his book was a painful exercise in straw grasping. So John Mandeville as a knight called Sir John Mandeville? Possible, but not proved. There's another possible explanation, though, that Mandeville was English and later on retired in Belgium and lived incognito for a lot of his life. The Travels of Sir John Mandeville was originally written in French, which educated English people at the time would have been familiar with, and folks in Belgium also would have been familiar with, and John Mandeville, maybe, lived under the pseudonym of John de Bourgogne, a physician who, on his deathbed, confessed to being the author of The Travels. Where does this come from? This comes from a Liège notary named Jean d'Otremuse, who wrote, In the year 1372, there died in Liège on the 12th of November, a man greatly distinguished by his birth, who was content to be known by the name Jean de Bourgogne called With the Beard. He opened his heart, however, on his deathbed to Jean d'Otremuse, d'Otremuse here is referring to himself in the third person, his friend whom he appointed his testamentary executor. In truth, he called himself, in the priestess of his last will, Master Jean de Mandeville, Knight, Count of Montfort in England, Lord of the Isle of Campati and of Chateau Perouse. Having had the misfortune to kill in his country a count, whom he did not name, he obliged himself to traverse to three parts of the world, that would be Europe, Africa, and Asia, came to Liège in 1343. Although he was a man of distinguished nobility, he preferred to keep himself hidden, For the rest, he was a great naturalist, a profound philosopher, and astrologer, to which he added in particular a single knowledge of medicine, rarely deceiving himself when expressing his opinion on concerning a patient, whether he would recover or not. Dying at last, he was interred in the suburb of Avroy." Now, this story has gotten kind of mutated through history. So, supposedly, Lots of folks from Belgium, Liège in particular, have said, no, 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 he actually was from Liège, and then, for weird reasons, was pretending to be English, but he was from here. There was a Belgian church that supposedly had a tomb for John de Bourgogne, aka John Mandeville, and that had an epitaph describing him as such, but rather conveniently, that church is no more. And if all of this stuff about deathbed confessions and Churches with the right epitaph that oh so conveniently no longer exist, if that sort of sounds like a conspiracy theory, I agree with you, but this was conventional wisdom for a long time. For some time, a lot of people, when they were talking about John Mandeville, just sort of went with this version of the story, that he was this guy who killed a count, got the hell out of England, traveled around the Holy Land, wrote a thing about cannibals and valleys of darkness, and retired, and became this Total Renaissance man before there was even a Renaissance in Liège. And one of the books I read for this, uh, Sir John Mandeville, The Man and His Book by Malcolm Letts, yeah, he's into this. He thinks that Mandeville was the author's real name and that he had later on adopted this pseudonym before dying in Belgium, which I still think sounds like a total conspiracy theory, and we can't really substantiate that with any documentation. There's also always the possibility that whoever wrote the book was just having fun, cutting and pasting various pieces of known mythology together and making a travelogue just because they thought it would be a really elaborate prank that would be sort of cool. And that is not really a satisfying idea, but it's the one that I think is most likely. I like to believe that John Mandeville was actually a pair of drunken monks in a monastery late at night talking about the golden legend and Prester John and thinking, hey, Wouldn't it be cool if we put all this together? And then they did. Regardless of who wrote the book, though, it was still amazingly influential and popular. Mandeville's depiction of the foreign is exotic, it's compelling, and a lot of critics have noted that it is weirdly proto-pluralistic. Mandeville, when he encounters the other, he certainly has a lot of negative things to say, But, instead of just being repelled by the foreign, instead of just being repelled by the things outside of his own experience, he tries, tries, to have a certain amount of empathy with them. Here's Mandeville toward the end, talking in general terms about the foreign. He says, "'God loves them well and is well-pleased by their manner of life as he was with Job, who was a pagan, yet nevertheless his deeds were as acceptable to God as those of his loyal servants.' And even if there are many different religions and different beliefs in the world, I still believe God will always love those who love him in truth and serve him meekly and truly, setting no store by the vainglory of our world. Now, that sounds kind of nice, actually. Uh, It's not exactly in accordance with, say, modern multiculturalism, but it's it's a nice sentiment. (laughs) However, there's one very important and extremely uncomfortable caveat to this. There's one group that Mandeville has really nothing but contempt for, and that's Jews. For all of his charitable and proto-pluralistic depictions of Muslims, Asians, Africans, and even imagined peoples, Mandeville seems to have nothing but disdain for his fellow European Abrahamic monotheist. There's one part toward the end where Mandeville describes, and this is weird, Jews shut into mountains, waiting for eons for some future calamity, when they will later emerge and wreak havoc upon the Christian world. And again and again and again, all of the thoughtfulness and all the consideration that Mandeville gives to these far-flung people that he meets or says he meets elsewhere in the world, he does not extend that same kind of charitable thinking to the people, the other, that he might very well have met. And this might sound like a contradiction, but on reflection, I think there's a weird consistency to it. Uh, Mandeville sees humanity in the other peoples that he meets, insofar as he sees them as potential Christians, or uninformed Christians, or people who are acting out of ignorance. There's this implicit assumption that they're merely not aware of Christianity. Uh, They are not sufficiently advanced, but, and this is just my interpretation of it, Mandeville seems to think that the people in other lands could, at some far-off future time, become more like him, become more Christian. So, in that he sees humanity in other people, it's more like he sees the potential himness in other people. He sees the potential for his own culture and religion to be reflected in this unformed other. And this is, of course, totally paternalistic and condescending. But it's also better than just, you know, outright dismissing people who live elsewhere. If you wanted to, and I read a few things that wanted to, you could read this as kind of proto-colonialist. If you really wanted to see the precursor of Europeans baptizing Native Americans uh, in some work of popular European literature, you could point to the travels of Sir John Mandeville. So, with that in mind, it makes sense that he would be far less tolerant of the other right in front of him. Jews were living in Europe surrounded by Christianity, and their persistent insistence on having their own culture and religion, the nerve, couldn't be attributed to geography or distance or just not getting the memo. They were well aware of the whole memo. They just weren't that into it. That and Mandeville is very much in the Jews killed Jesus camp, which I've never really understood. Uh, Crucifixion was a Roman punishment meted out by Roman soldiers and ordered by a Roman governor. But let's blame the Jews. That has never, ever, ever made sense to me. How is that a thing? The anti-Semitism of the travels is rather hard to take, and it is especially distressing when put next to Mandeville's otherwise positive-ish depictions of other cultures. And those depictions, and a lot of the travel recommendations, they were taken somewhat seriously by readers, most notably Christopher Columbus, probably because of the book's emphasis on circumnavigation. And it's also detailed depictions of what life was like and the court was like of the Great Khan. Uh, Columbus consulted it as a guide to the various lands that he was hoping to reach. And I'd like to think that he was probably pretty disappointed when he got to the Caribbean and he couldn't find any giants or people with faces on their chest or dog people. And by the way, while we're talking about circumnavigation... Uh, I might as well, um, actually, a common misconception. Uh, it's tangentially related to Mandeville. Magellan was not the first person to circumnavigate the globe. That honor goes to Enrique of Malacca, a slave who was brought along on the Magellan mission. Um, in the travels, Mandeville describes a man who walked around the world and eventually heard his own language being spoken again after walking around the entire planet. And in that moment, he had nearly circumnavigated the globe that really happened. That is precisely what happened with Enric, whose real name is lost to us. When Magellan's crew got to the islands around Indonesia, Enric, he found that he could speak with many of the people that they met. Given that Enric had been captured, later taken from the Indonesian islands, and then crossed the Atlantic and the Pacific, and then back to Indonesia, his home region, he is the first human being that we know of to actually get all the way around the world, and. He knew he did because he heard his language being spoken again. His circumstance was a whole lot like the hypothetical circumstance that was described in that late 1300s fantastic travelogue. I don't think it matters who John Mandeville was, and I don't think it matters if he was any one person or a group of people. The book is compelling, nonetheless. My experience of reading the book and talking about it with you was that of reliving not a particular foreign place, but the experience of travel and foreignness in general. The particular feeling of going into the unknown. The Travels does an excellent job of distilling that feeling of landing in an airport, in a city that you've never been, or of speaking badly a language you do not really know, or trying to read a sign that you can kind of interpret, and of finding wonder in some other country's mundanity, of looking at everyday life in a place that's not your own, and it being a challenge and a puzzle, a weird thing that you have to figure out. That feeling of being a traveler and a foreigner and of walking through a world that is not yours, and of occasionally finding small scraps of the familiar in the new, that particular feeling, it is stressful, it is challenging, it is extraordinarily stimulating, It is wondrous, and that is something that the travels absolutely nails. That feeling is still recognizable to anyone who has traveled the world all these many centuries later. This podcast is 100% independent, ad-free, and listener-supported. That is, you supported. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation via Patreon, a voluntary subscription service, and keep this thing going. I expend a fair amount of my own resources on this podcast. And if you want to expend a small amount of your resources on it, that would be wonderful. Go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, give us stars and kind words and that sort of thing. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Facebook, facebook.com slash Streckert. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.